Welcome. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're here. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and uh, we're glad that you'd be here, that you'd be spending your Sunday with us. And uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'd love to greet you formally. Again, if you're a visitor, welcome. If you do have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of service. It's printed there. Uh, we're looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this morning. And as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've been approaching this with the question of what is it that the church is to be? Who is the church and how are we to live out what it means to be the church? And so as we're asking this question, we're asking it in, in light of Ephesians because this is the question that the Ephesian church was asking. Remember, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know that the Ephesian church is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. So these people who have heard the gospel and believed, these people who have very different pasts, very different histories, very different ideas of how the world is supposed to function, and yet they have one thing that in, is in common, their belief in the Lord Jesus. And so now they're coming with these different perspectives in, in this secular city, this pagan place. They're coming together to live as God's people. And, and how are they to do that? What does it mean to be God's people? Well, that is not just the question that the Ephesian church would be asking. This is the question that we ask. Maybe we don't put it in those sorts of terms, but we're constantly asking, what does it look like for us to be God's people? How are we supposed to live? How do we respond to this situation or that situation? What does it look like for me to walk as a child of God? Those are the same questions we ask. And so it's with these questions that we come to this book, seeking answers and finding them. And so let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't remember if it was a Saturday or a Friday evening, but a number of years ago, my friend was sitting in his room. He was sitting in his room with his ear pressed to the phone. And as he was talking on the phone, engaging in this conversation with uh, another person in his church, he heard the door, his front door, below him open. There was no knocking. There was no doorbell ring just opened, and, and as it opened, it opened to shrieks and squeals. 
And after he heard the shrieks and squeals, he also heard the, the running of feet from the back of the house to greet the shrieks and squeals in the foyer at the, at the, uh, at the doorway. So you see, what was happening was my, my friend, his daughter, had just gotten engaged. His daughter had just gotten engaged, and so she, she came in, and she was squealing, and she was excited, and she was overjoyed that she was going to be married. And those feet that were running were the feet of his other daughter and of his wife to greet her and to welcome her. And so, you know, there was celebration, and there was rejoicing, and everyone was happy, and yet my friend remained in his room. He remained in his room because out of one ear, he heard the celebrating of this joyous event. But in the other ear, he didn't hear celebrating. He heard sobbing. He heard sobbing. He couldn't, he couldn't go downstairs and enter into the joy of his daughter. You see, this, this wasn't just any kind of celebrating. Any engagement is worth celebrating. But, but this one particular daughter, she was in her 40s. She never had a long-term relationship. Her parents had been praying for decades that she would be married. She had been praying, and they had just come to the conclusion that this wasn't the Lord's will for them, for her. She had actually started to become very content with this and actually wrote a book about singleness, what it means to be a single woman in the church, a, a book that was published. She had resolved that this was not what the Lord would have, and yet the Lord answered this prayer. But my friend couldn't engage. He couldn't go down and embrace his daughter. He couldn't have tears of joy. He couldn't celebrate with them because on the other end of this phone was weeping and grief. You see, he was talking to a person in his church who, who had been engaged in a great deal of sin, had been overcome by by the flesh and had given in countless times again and again and again. And there on the other end of the phone was someone confessing, repenting, seeking healing. In one ear he heard celebration and in the other he heard sin. That, that tension, it's not just his story. That's the story that we see in the world around us, isn't it? We experience this on a regular basis. We look at the world, and at times we see great glory, great things that are worth celebrating, but at other times we see things that are just filled with sadness and grief, things that don't cause us to celebrate but actually cause us great pain. We feel the reality of both these truths, not just in the world but in our own hearts, right? I mean, we go from moment by moment. We go from one day where it doesn't seem like anything could go wrong. Everything just seems to be falling into place to the next, and it feels like everything is crumbling. We awaken in the morning to, to despair and sadness, but then in a moment, return to rejoicing. This fickleness, this changing, this moving back and forth, we feel it, not just in the world, but in our own hearts. I have a friend who's a pastor who likes to say that the glory and the garbage are always right next to each other. And he's right. Sometimes the glory is so glorious that, that, that the shine of it masks the garbage so we can't even see it. And sometimes the mire of the garbage is so deep that we can't even see a glint of glory. They're both there. It's not just my friend's story. It's not just our story. It's the story of the Ephesian church as well. This is a passage that I'm sure if you're a Christian that you have, 
you've embraced that you love Ephesians chapter 2, and you should. Right? In fact, one of y'all just this past week told me that 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9, were two of the first verses they ever memorized. And, and that's the same as me, and same for probably many of you. What wonderful, comforting verses. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one may boast. By grace you have been saved. How encouraging, how comforting, how wonderful. The glory of God on display in that passage. And yet that's not where Paul begins. He doesn't begin with God's glorious rescue of his people. He actually goes a little before that. He begins his story, he begins this story, not in our rescue, but in our rebellion. And so that's where we're going to begin. We're going to see the glory, but we also have to walk through the garbage as well. And so we're going to begin with the mire of our rebellion, and that's what we see in verses 1 and following, that this rebellion has taken place. Paul calls it trespasses and sins, our trespasses and sins, the ways that we have turned away from God, that we have sought our own ways, that we were dead in them. But look, how does this get manifest? Paul tells us in the verses that follow, in verses 2 through 3, he tells us how these sins and trespasses, how our rebellion get manifest in this world. He says it's a three-front war, right? That, that we were following the course of the world, that we were following the prince of the air, the devil, that we were living in the passions of the flesh. This three-front war, war is, is the world, the flesh, and the devil, these are how our rebellion is reflected. And, and when we look at the world, it's not difficult to see, is it? I mean, it's so clear and evident, the course of this world, how it is antithetical to the gospel, how it is contrary to God's kingdom. It's evident. And so, so how do we deal with this? I mean, well, if it was just in the world, and if it was just in the spiritual realm, well, well, maybe we could resist it, right? We could pull away. We could seclude ourselves. We could do our best to resist the spiritual work that is is pushing against us. Christians have sought that. They've tried that before. In fact, there's a movie, uh, not about Christians, but a movie that tried to depict this. The movie was The Village. The Village, it, it came out in 2004, so if I'm spoiling it for you, I mean, you, you had 12 years, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, but The Village uh, takes place, it centers on this cloistered community, okay, this cloistered community, and, and uh, they've retreated away from the world. They call it the city. The problem is in the city, and so they've retreated away. And they've actually, it takes place in modern times, but they've uh, sought to live as though they were like frontiersmen, pilgrims, right? They got rid of technology. They got rid of modern medicine. They got, because that would be a simpler, purer, more pristine way of living. And one thing that every one of these people have in common is that they had all been hurt. They had all experienced great pain at the hands of the world. Maybe it was that some of them had lost a loved one to great violence. Maybe it was that a loved one had left them and departed from them. Maybe it was they lost a child to sickness. And so they remove themselves. They pull away from the world. And things actually go pretty well for a little while. They live in this world of 
of purity and kind of pristineness. They're able to resist all that pain that they had experienced for a little while. They secluded themselves from the world, but, but then something happened. See, they could resist the world. They could even resist the spiritual things that were going on around them, but they couldn't resist their own hearts. You see, over time, jealousy seeped into the community. And with jealousy, anger, and with anger, an attempted murder. See, the problem wasn't just in the world outside of them. The problem was in the world of their own hearts. And the same is true of us. We hear it in verse 3. What does Paul say? We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, Paul's saying that our flesh is a co-conspirator with the world and with the devil. That we are taking down the world's path and we follow after the prince of this air because our flesh is actually oriented towards those things. That the problem isn't just out there, the problem is in here, in my own heart and in yours. Now listen, but before we move on, it's important to notice that that when Paul says passions and desires, what he's not saying, it's important for us to think about that because it'd be easy for us to go, well, there's the problem. If we just live as Christians as like these stoic, emotionless beings, then all those problems would go away, right? The problem is passion and desire. But that's not what Paul's saying. Actually, passions and desires can be quite good. The problem that Paul has is the way in which our passions are, have been oriented. The things that we are desiring after, these things that are contrary to God's ways and his kingdom. Now you see, the problem is that we have misappropriated all these things that God has given us. These good desires, these longings for love that then get manifest into lust, these longings for security that get manifest in, in control, these whatever it might be. We misappropriate these good desires that God has given to us. And it's not just those bad people out there, right? It's us. That's what he said. All of us, we all once lived like the rest of mankind. It's us as well. You see, since Adam, humanity has a shared identity. And what that shared identity is, is children of wrath. Children of wrath. And because of this, we were dead. That's what he says in verse 1. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead, not on life support, not just barely hanging on. Spiritually, we were dead and without hope. It's actually where those membership vows began. Did you follow along and listen to them? The first one says, Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope? hope without hope in of ourselves there is no hope so what do we do how do we handle this there's a few ways that we could try and do this right the first is that we could just simply ignore it right we could put sin aside we could say that it doesn't actually exist that that what we experience as sin isn't truly sin um, people have sought to do this in fact, one band that I like to listen to, the Lumineers, this is what they advocate. They say in one of their most recent songs, forget what Father Brennan said, we were not born in sin. 
That's one option, right? We could just pretend like it's not really there. Oh, it's not sin. It's a mistake. Just sweep it under the rug. But I know most of you. I know a lot of you. And I know that 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 doesn't sit well with us because that's not being very honest with the world that we experience. And it's not being very honest with our own hearts. No, we we don't ignore. We don't say it doesn't exist. What do we do? Well, if you're like me, and I imagine that many of you are, we try and deal with our sin by minimizing it. We make light of it. I mean, think about, the, think about your thought process before you enter into sin. What are some of the things that you hear yourself saying? It's not that bad. It won't really hurt. I mean, that thought that I'm having, no one else has to ever know, so it won't affect anyone. Those words that I say, oh, they're just being too sensitive. It's not that big of a deal. We minimize it. We make light of it. Sometimes we justify it. If they hadn't have said what they said to me, then I wouldn't have responded the way that I did. But listen, whether we ignore it and put it aside or deny its existence, whether we make light of it or whether we justify it, if that is what we do, if that is all that sin is, not that big of a deal, something that is a right response, something that doesn't exist, then Jesus died in vain. If our sin is not that big of a deal, then why did Jesus take on flesh and live and die a death that we deserved, that he did not? Now, you see, our sin is such a reality and is such a big deal that we needed Jesus to die in our place. We needed Jesus to accomplish what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He did not die in vain. You know what's wonderful about this passage? Is that Paul spends three verses walking us through the mire of our rebellion, and it doesn't feel very good, right? Like, who wants to think about these sorts of things? He walks us through the mire of our rebellion and our sin, but he doesn't leave us there. Do you see how he turns it? In verse 4, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You have sought your own ways, but God. You are without hope in of yourself, but God. I don't know if there are any two sweeter and kinder words that we could hear in that moment. But God, he didn't leave us in the mire of our sin, but instead, instead he points us to the glory of God's rescue. He turns us from our rebellion and points us to the rescue of God. And that's what he does. He rescues us. But God, he didn't leave us in our sin, but he rescues us. And this rescue is reflected first in giving us new life. New life. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has given us new life. He didn't leave us in our death. He made us alive together with Christ. There's that language again, right? That united language you're going to get sick of hearing about, but it's all over. We are united to him in life. He didn't leave us in our death, but he united us to Jesus in his resurrection. Last week, Matt 
Matt preaching in chapter 1, the end of it, he pointed out in verse 19, the power of Christ to be raised from the dead. That is the power that's at work in us. It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work in us to take us from death to life. That is amazing. That is incredible, y'all. That God didn't leave us in our death, but that he would actually use the power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him on the throne to breathe life into us and to raise us up with him. That's what verse 6 says. That we are raised so that we are in heaven with him. That's what God does to us. He didn't leave us in our rebellion, but he rescues us. I mean, notice, notice in verses 1 through 3, the tense of the verbs. Did you all notice that? They're all in the past tense. It's amazing. They're all in the past tense. You were dead. You once walked. You once lived. You were children of wrath. You were, but not anymore. But not anymore. God turned those who were children of wrath into children of grace. Those inclined towards the world, he turned us to heavenly places. Those following the prince of the air, he made us followers of the king of the universe. And he did this by grace, not by works. Not by works. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we could do. And it's not like God looked into the future and saw the good works that we would do, right? There, there's actually a branch of Christianity that says that, that, that God just looked into the future and he saw the good works that we would do. And because of those good works, then he gives us his grace. But that's not grace, y'all. That's works. It is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one may boast. The grace of God poured upon us and what's amazing about this is the state in which we were in when he poured it on us. We were his enemies. We were his enemies. Look, you don't, you don't respond to enemies with grace, right? Think, think about the two people in our nation right now who probably hate each other more than any other two people in the world, right? Like, you don't have to think very hard, right? <laughs> right? They're at war with one another, just in case you're not sure, Donald and Hillary, right? Is that what you guys, okay, good, good. Right, they're at war with one another. We don't expect them to be kind and gentle and generous and gracious. What do we expect? We expect anger and vengeance and backbiting and lies and deception, right? What would happen if one of them, not for political gain, not, not to promote themselves, but just out of kindness, was gracious to the other. We would be so surprised that we would swear that it wasn't for good intentions, right? <laughs> right? It's like, man, just, it's just another lie because we don't expect it. We don't expect that. We don't expect rebellion to, to beget grace. We expect rebellion to beget rebellion. And yet God shows his grace to us. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that while we were his enemies, he redeemed us by his son. While we were his enemies, while we hated him, he showed love to us. That is amazing. That he would give us this new life. For by grace you have been saved, not by works. It is truly a gift. 
Every part of us was turned away from God. And yet out of love, he turned toward us and gave his son. It's not because of works, but he saved us for works. That's the other part of this rescue. He breathes into us new life. He gives us new life, but he also gives us new works. That's what we see in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What this means is that our personal salvation, our personal redemption, isn't just for us. It is for us, but it's not just for us. It's not so that we would hold on to it and we would bottle it up for our own consumption. It's so that it would actually produce in us works that reflect the grace of God. This new life that we have, that it would pour out from us. I mean, did you notice the progression? Death, life, works. That is the direction. It doesn't stop with new life. It ends, it ends with these works that are produced because of this new life. And that order can never be reversed. It can never be reversed. That is what he has done. That is what he is calling us to. But, but what are these good works? What are them? I mean, if, if we're just talking, and I said, well, what are the fruit? What are the works that we should see being manifest in the life of a Christian? There's lots of things we could talk about, right? Caring for the poor, um, loving the needy. We could talk about evangelism. We could talk about being a blessing to our neighbors. We could talk about being a blessing to our city. We could talk about all these sorts of things. And, and hopefully in the weeks and the months and the years to come, we will talk about all those. But I think at the very minimum... At the very foundation, it means that we are people of grace. That it means that we are marked as people of forgiveness. I want you to think about this. These aren't just any works. They're new works. They are contrary to our old works. Right? Think, think about that. The grace that has been shown to us, the way we respond to that grace is by more grace. By being gracious to others, it doesn't mean we ignore sin. We still call sin, sin. We call injustice, injustice. But we are marked primarily as people of grace. People of forgiveness. What does this look like? Probably many of you remember that a little over a year ago. A white man, young man, walked into the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He walked into that place as a stranger, and yet the men and women in that room welcomed him as a friend. They invited him in, and they prayed with him, and they read the scriptures with him. He came in as a stranger, and they treated him like a friend. And instead of treating them like a friend, what did, how did they, he treat them? As an enemy. He had received grace and care and love. And he killed them. I mean, the sadness and the pain, the anger that ensued, rightfully so. And not just in Charleston, not just at that church, but, but in our nation. The anger and the sadness, the sorrow and the grief that, that resulted from that. I mean, the, that, that's how we as a people, as a nation, responded to that. But do you remember how the the family members responded. That man was apprehended. He was taken into custody, and they had an opportunity. 
the victim's family had an opportunity to speak to him. Now, I want you to think about that. What would you say? Someone who has just taken the life of your child, your spouse, your friend, what would you say to that person? I would imagine that for many of us, it would be, it would be hard not to respond with anger to not want to respond with frustration, not to, to curse him. And yet, do you remember what they said? Looking through that thick pane of glass, looking into his eyes, one of the women said, you hurt me. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. I forgive you. Another man came forward and he looked at this young man and he said, you hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. I forgive you. One after another. Not ignoring their pain, but in the midst of their pain. He said, I forgive you. I have mercy towards you. I forgive you. Do you remember the, the media and the commentators who observed this? They, they had no category for this. They couldn't comprehend how this could happen. They were shocked. It was amazing that these people would respond in this way because, because violence begets violence and anger begets vengefulness and yet that's not what they responded with. You see, those men and women, they had received grace. They had known of a mercy far greater than they could ever give. The mercy that God had showed them. And because of that, they were able to be gracious to another. Not to whitewash the sin, not to ignore the injustice, but to say, I forgive you. Friends, I don't know all the specific ways that this is going to get fleshed out in your lives. I don't know all the good works that we are called to do in your places of work and in your homes, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. I don't know every detail, but I do know this. That God, while we were in rebellion against him, loved us so much that he would give his son to rescue us, to shower us with grace, to make us not children of wrath, but children of grace. And because of that, we respond with grace. We live out of forgiveness. We live out of mercy. I don't know all the details, but I know at the very least, it means that that's who we are. That this is who we are and this is what we reflect into the world. And we are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of peace. Peace, children of peace, who show forth the grace of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. That you have rescued us. You have taken us out of our rebellion and you have rescued us and showered us with grace and mercy and care. We thank you for that. We rejoice at the good news of the gospel and ask that you would constantly put that before us. Help us, Father, to respond to your grace by being gracious.
by showing love, by seeking mercy and forgiveness. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said together,